Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a couple of old friends who've both been trying new things lately, Hannibal Burris and Christian Mercado. Burris just celebrated his 40th birthday, which means he spent more than half his life making people laugh for a living. He started out doing stand-up in his hometown of Chicago, winning audiences small and then eventually very large by telling pointed jokes with a sort of super laid-back style. He briefly wrote for Saturday Night Live and 30 Rock, and you've almost certainly seen him on The Eric Andre Show or Broad City or maybe one of his many stand-up specials. In the past few years, though, Burroughs has turned his attention to music, releasing a bunch of tracks under the name Eshoo Tune. Though rumors of his retirement from comedy seem to be exaggerated, he talks about that here, he is taking music seriously. Or maybe seriously isn't exactly the right word, but it's his focus. Check out a little bit of the Eshoo Tune song Knee Brace right here. Hit it from the back of my knee brace on the Velcro park, keep catching the thong. Put it off once, then left it alone. Hit the dance floor, two step to the song. Hit it from the back of my knee brace on the Velcro park, keep catching the thong. Put it off once, then left it alone. Hit the dance floor, two step to the song. Dark Darty acting all bum fuzzled. Everything is catty wampus, I'm feeling trouble. Allow me to bloviate, yes, I'm talking double. I just looked up weird words, use a snolly guster, babble monster. Why you out here causing problems of walking Donnie Brook? I yell out. The other side of this chat, Christian Mercado is best known as a filmmaker. He's made music videos and directed stand up specials for Michael Che, Taylor Tomlinson, and Alana Glazer, among other people, and of course, Hannibal Burris, with whom he worked on the weird and wonderful Miami Nights. Mercado is about to take the biggest jump a director can. He just directed his first feature film called If You Were the Last, which will have its world premiere at this year's South by Southwest Festival in Austin. I haven't seen it, but it stars Anthony Mackie, and it's a sci-fi love story, so I'm in. Mercado has also started dabbling in stand-up comedy, inspired by the many comics he's worked with over the years, including, of course, Hannibal. These two chat about how they work, and Burris drops the news that he's working on a feature-length script of his own, which Mercado can't wait to hear more about. Burris also quizzes Mercado on the most important people on a film set, like a gaffer. And Mercado talks about the joys of experiencing the Sundance Film Festival under the influence of psychedelics. Enjoy. Yo, what's good, Hannibal? The studio looks nice, man. Yeah, man, got it set up differently. TK, our engineer, been helping out and getting it like professional to an engineer's standards, which involves a lot of different, you know, downloading all these sounds and plugins. It's a lot of different stuff in here. It looks uh, very creator friendly, you know, like it is. Hey, once all this together, that's when we made this. I make I live weights track is once the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that the new track did you just make it yeah we just made that sunday oh hell yeah i gotta listen to it. where do you like kind of come up with the songs like where how do you come up with them because you kind of like they're kind of all over the place a little bit but in a, like the best way possible you know with veneers i was in hawaii and i just I, I got up and i decided it was a day i wanted to create more than i consume which is mm. not most days i end up doing that i wish i could if i could actually stick to that it would be insane i would make so much stuff but like what if i made one thing for each thing i watched i would be one of the most prolific people in the world <laughs> or i would have to not watch as much stuff yeah either way it would still be a good ratio even if you only watched one thing 
or two, three things a day, you cut it down to that and you just made, tried to make things a quality for that, whatever. So this particular day I saw was a thumbnail for a video of, uh, you know, Adam 22, no jumper. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it was a video, just a thumbnail of him talking about his hair piece that he got. Right. And I guess he used to be bald and he got a hair piece and he was like, Adam 22. And I didn't click on it, but it just made me think about just mm. cosmetic shit I had, which was my veneers. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't talked about it. I think I alluded to it in stand up, but just briefly, like I just say, like TV teeth or something like that. Yeah. But I never had talked about it in depth or through music. And so that's another cool thing with the music has been been able to take things or stories I've discussed a little bit or might have discussed in stand-up or maybe talked about something on a podcast and then reformatting it into a song. Mm. So there's a lot of source material to work with. So that was, it just made me think, oh, I hadn't talked about veneers and that'd be a fun subject for a song. I love that song. Doing the music video was a lot of fun too. Like it was kind of wild. It's cool too, like just like in general to like be able to like, experiment or like remix like a format or like remix something like i feel like i do that all the time too where i'll be like oh yeah like i'm really interested in this thing but like what if i remixed it and made it something else or found something else to talk about yeah it's yeah so many different formats and mediums that you know the ideas can be flipped anyway correct me if i'm wrong but like you got the veneers because you were like a car crash too right yeah i had a chip on there from the car crash i had a gap already and then the car crash chipped it yeah and then, okay. yeah so it was a it was a mixture of of the original look and then i'm being, being a little messed up word i'm invisaligning right now like straight yep. up <laughs> been painful as hell <laughs> what does that do it's kind of like invisible braces basically mm-hmm. they're like little plastic grills that use like little by little like ah, ah ships your teeth around you know yeah so like have you always wanted to do music i feel like i know the answer to that but i'm just asking mm-hmm. i recorded some songs with my friend dave i think early college so maybe on a college break before i start no was it was i still in high school i think i was still in high school maybe and i recorded some goofy songs yeah once i started doing comedy for some reason, I just said, oh, I'm a comedian now. And that's it. Even though there was more than enough time to pursue music alongside it. You know what I mean? I became immediately booked and busy with comedy when I was 19 and 20 years old. And I just hyper-focused on it and, and studied as much as I could and did as many shows as I could and just tried to do everything in my power then to support that feeling and that chase that I had going on. People like associate you with one thing and then you try something else because like I kind of experienced a version of this like recently where like I'm mostly a director, right? Like I'm mostly known as a director, but I direct mm-hmm. all over the like spectrum of directing, right? Like I'll do yeah. like animation, I'll do like a music video, I'll do like, you know, like we've worked together, we did a comedy special, I've done a lot of comedy specials. And at some point I kind of was like, man, you know, I started being so around comedy and honestly through you i felt i really have fallen in love with it a lot you know and like really respect the medium and i was like shit should i try this thing and like it was kind of like it's really weird to start something new or like but even if you've been around it a lot where it's like fuck like when do you just jump in you know because Mm -hmm. even i feel like you you've been around like a lot of prolific musicians you know like thundercat and danny brown and like fly low and all that you know so they yeah that's like kind of a wave of music too you know what i'm saying 
how does it feel to kind of like jump between the, the two or it's been exciting man last year is the first year where the majority of my shows were music shows yeah and since you know and we're going back to 2002 at the beginning of my yeah, my performance yeah. career so that was wild because it made everything kind of feel exciting and special i think my first shows were in march or something at south by southwest and then i had my i had some comedy shows but i would turn them into music shows and have a band with me i love that you know i would get overwhelmed a lot just the feeling of is completely different than than what i've been doing because after a while with the comedy I would add stuff to my shows to try to make it fresh, but you know, you can become a little numb to it a little bit after you're doing theaters for a while and it's repetitive, easy to not appreciate it and for it to not be as exciting. And then I think jumping back after pandemic, I didn't feel like going back into stand up and grinding it out in front of folks. And But I think I overestimated the work it would take me to get back into stand up shape. In my mind, I put it as this grueling, two months of me bombing relentlessly in front of audiences (laughs) when the real reality of it when i started doing stand-up again it took me one rough show and that show wasn't even that bad and then after that it was like oh i got this figured out again so that felt good to know that i could get back into it i definitely told some folks i was retired from stand-up and shit you know where i was just i didn't see myself going back into it but now i kind of have to because this music shit is expensive his music game is expensive. <laughs> and so I have to do stand up until my rap career pops off. But it's yeah. fun to do it with that in mind, though, also. Uh, and like be and doing comedy with focus. This is to pay for the veneers video part <laughs> of it. This is to do this. I'm doing this. to, and, and so it's now in day job mode, which gives, I think, the show some energy and edge. No. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a kind of like on the opposite spectrum of that. <laughs> Where, like, I'm like, oh yeah, like I direct and like I got paid for that, yeah. you know. Then um, when I do a comedy show, which is I haven't done a lot of it anyway, but like the times you do it, it's like, oh yeah, you got ten dollars. <laughs> it's like, but those ten dollars feel really earned. You know what I mean? Similar to what you were saying about like the music thing, like when you start doing something new, it comes mm-hmm. with this new energy and like. It makes you feel like like almost alive again in a weird way. Definitely. And then like when I started doing like random little stand up shows, I had that like, like experience too, where I was like, oh shit, this is feels like a vibe. Yeah, it's definitely exciting, man. I mean, it's a new feeling for me. These are the, like doing music and doing my shows with the production that I like to have. Yeah, been, yeah. has been the first time I've lost money on show yeah 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 because comedy's so low overhead that you just show up you sell tickets yep and unless you're booking a bunch of other people or doing something yeah. it's pretty tough to lose money on a comedy show and i love but but music i probably lost i lost money on maybe like at least seven shows like when i did the i solo sessions because mm-hmm. i had band and more moving pieces yeah. camera guy and yeah. then small venue that happens in film as well like in filmmaking like sometimes when you're starting out mm-hmm. you're kind of like making the projects yourself right like you're making a short and then kind of like you carry the responsibility of that budget almost you know and sometimes yeah. if it goes over it's coming out of your pocket because right you're the person kind of like putting it together so like it's a weird thing that happens where you have to like 
scramble and like kind of figure it out and sometimes ends up being really good because you end up working with your friends and then you start discovering stuff like even like you know me and Ruder, my editor like when we work together sometimes we would work on projects just kind of like mad scrappy like where it would be like oh is there like even a budget here like but it was kind of like exciting sometimes to do that just because it almost feels like when you don't have like like a fiscal like responsibility to some like entity that might not even have like good taste or whatever, you know, like you're allowed to kind of just create from a pure place, you know? Yeah. It's nice to just do your own thing is why I haven't really been, I haven't, and I don't really desire to hitch that much right now. I don't feel like, I don't really feel like dealing with y'all in that way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Finding the right collaborators to create with is always kind of like a, a fucking journey. My approach has always been like, yes, be like as earnest and genuine about your impulse, you know, as possible. Mm-hmm. And then like, I feel like that just guides me. Like, it's like, oh, that sounds cool. I would love to do that. And like, I almost figure it out like after the fact sometimes. Like, and what I mean by that is almost like, it's like nice to just jump in when you really genuinely want to jump into something. And then like, yeah, let all, let all the other pieces kind of come together as you go. How was working on your first feature? Bro, it was that was like semi-religious experience for me. You've known me a long time, so you you know how serious you've seen me cry about mm-hmm. film shit. You've seen me like go through it. It's like something I've been like wanting to do my whole life and like just being able and it's like one of the hardest art forms to do, you know, because of the scale of it, you know, like it's like the biggest canvas, right? It was fucking special, man. It really was. Like, I can't even lie. Like, um, I shot for 30 days, as long as I've ever shot before. Yeah. What was the budget? Uh, eight mil. Eight million. Eight million. Word. Pretty good for like a, it's called, I guess it's called the tier one, a tier one film. <laughs> it's the yeah. proper term, but it's still considered indie, which is crazy to think about, yeah. right? You know how to get a lot out of a budget, though. I pulled out all the tricks for the film, for sure. And uh, mm. you certainly know I have a lot of tricks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah man for sure yeah man it was exciting though it was like i feel like i felt at home that's what it was the most this is like uh, maybe it's like it's really personal to say that but like i love i feel like the world is chaotic you know like it's so like hard mm-hmm. to like navigate the world and like i almost feel like like on set i always feel like more comfortable because like i almost feel like it's like i understand like what a set should have or like where like people know the expectations or like there's like kind of like an order to it even if it's chaotic order that's how i feel about the studio Mm. i think it's because it's less life and it's just Mm. like right now it's you know the sound is treated in here yeah yeah so i don't hear the outside noise so it'll be yeah Yeah. so you just hit listen to music or be on here or be in it's a whole different world and just uh you know knowing that anything can kind of happen though too creatively Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. 
More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of the TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. As far as putting together the team on a film, I know you've got your different cinematographers that you've worked with before. Yeah. With some project, is there an interview process, or are you just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, what is, what's the interview process like with, when, you, when you're picking a cinematographer? You're kind of trying to decide who's like going to be your partner. Like, especially for a movie, everyone you kind of work with, it's like long haul, you know, like you're going to have to figure it out together the whole time. I had a lot of options for cinematographers, which was cool because the script was really beloved and like people wanted to work on the film. And my treatment for it was really clear. Like, like I think everyone who saw it understood the vision of the film, which was kind of like very like, um, this is had a vibe. Like, it's just like a very specific tone to it. I would just show them the treatment and then they would be like, holy shit, amazing script, amazing visual language of this treatment and this director's vision for it. I would like have like really earnest conversations with the cinematographers, knowing what I was trying to accomplish. Like, you know, yeah. the cinematographer I got is this dude, Alex uh, Disanoff, which mm-hmm. is, here's the crazy part. All right. So here's the crazy part about this. This guy literally shot Lord of the Rings, the TV series which is the biggest budgeted television show in history. But, you know, we had a really, like, strong conversation where I was like, hey, like, I think you're, like, the person. He is the person that had to come in to make this film possible. And I was really honest with him about that. I was like, I know that you work on, like, these enormous projects, but this is our, like, little baby, right? I put a lot of love into this thing. Like, I spent, like, I don't know, like, maybe two years developing it and, like, working it out and pitching it and trying to get it up off the ground. And it took a lot of my life, you know, and like really as a first time feature, really like it's not even just that like piece of your life. It's almost like everything that came before, like kind of gets crashed into that moment, you know, and Alex, he just knew how to kind of get to that place that we were looking for. But he was also kind of like a recent like father, you know, like he just had a baby. And I think I liked that about him because there was the idea of like oh you're taking care of someone new and you're also working on our movie and like those feelings and all these new experiences that you're having as a cinematographer are gonna like 
you know, because our, our movie is a lot about love, you know? Mm-hmm. So I kind of like really focused a lot about like having the crew members and like the people really understand like we're making something that's like a love letter to like the audience, you know? Wow. Yeah, it's pretty intense. <laughs> what was the toughest day on set? Oh, oh wow. Oh, man, there was a lot of tough days, honestly. There was a day where I kind of like had to decide to like flip some stuff in the production where I was like, I'm going to do something new. And like, I had to like move around a lot of pieces, you know, but it was the right decision to make, you know, like you have to make those decisions sometimes. Like, um, and I did it early enough in the production where it was possible to kind of pivot because I really wanted the visual language to be very specific of the film. You mean you did a, a rewrite? The script was really good. So I didn't have to do much of that, but I would rewrite based on like, how do we make the scene more like work for us mm-hmm. or like and you know because of the comedy vibes that you know i've been around bless you know super blessed to you for that too by the way like that shit has given me so much i feel like i learned how to riff a lot like just right. on set and that shit is that's a powerful way to make a movie like if you have the ability to riff on a set like and like kind of like almost rewrite a scene just with your words you know in the moment just from like the spontaneity of a comedic moment it's kind of magical and it's something that like a few directors do really well. Like Judd Apatow does that, Adam McKay, you know? So like, yeah. and they come from comedy. So there's like something now that I have that I can always play with. My hope is at some point where I can kind of like have maybe like, I don't know, like four or five comics just hanging on set, just watching shit and like, you know, riffing, you know, and maybe I could just add those riffs into the movie or not, but, but we'll see. That's exciting to hear about, the writing on set. I know that it's a part of, of filmmaking, but it's I'm in the process of writing the film. And so it's nice to oh, no way. think about that going ahead about the directing. Oh, super cool. I mean, you don't have to tell us any like about the script just it's too early, but I'm just so curious what a movie that you would like kind of have like a lot of say in would be. You know what I mean? You have a like, large body of film work, but you're like kind of always like a character or something or like but I always wanted to see what like you leading a project would be like too. I don't even think I would. I wouldn't lead acting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would pure direct and maybe mm-hmm. be a background blink if you miss extra. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the beauty of filmmaking, though, right? Yeah. Like you don't have to be in every position necessarily. Yeah. you can kind of just flow. Yeah, and I would, you know, make some music for it. I think part of my is I'm working on a movie. To put music to something. That's amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. So you should see this movie, right? Called All Dirt Roads Taste of Salt. I believe the script for that was only 60 pages, but the movie's like a 90-page film, you know? I feel like a lot of people get caught up with this idea of like, oh, like the format of a screenplay, the format of a screenplay, like even like everything everywhere all at once, right? Like that's the biggest movie of the year right now. And the screenplay says I see in it. And and people always say, don't write, I see, I see, you know, because it's like a rule in, in screenwriting not to write that. Right. So, like, do you feel like the film would be like a musical journey kind of vibe? It's a horror comedy with characters in music world. But the music, I'm just thinking about the scoring and, and all of that and just how to, you know, oh, between yeah. the music I'm making and the music yeah. my friends make. I'm excited to just put all the pieces together, finally, because it's, it's been something that been wanting to do for well well not i actually haven't been it's not i haven't been trying to do that mm-hmm. because the right thing hasn't pushed me towards it yeah so uh it's nice now to kind of 
you know, go in and having all, you know, the experience in acting and TV and, you know, putting other things together. You have the comedy, you have music, you have like, you know, what a set runs like. You yeah, documentary stuff, and yeah, perform, yeah, you yeah. know, so podcasting yeah. and and bring it all into into the film world. So it'll be, yeah. you know, be cool. Are you still in Utah? I'm still in Park City. How's it going? It's been fun, man. It's like chaotic as hell. It's a lot yeah. of fun, though. Like, I do enjoy it here. You get a lot of film community here. So, like, mm-hmm. and it all kind of, like, crashes at once into each other, you know? So, like, that energy, I like it. It keeps me active and keeps me, like, engaged. And it's, like, ground level. So, like, you can kind of see, like, emerging filmmakers and, like, new people. And I even see people who I've inspired, which is crazy. Right. That's a wild thing to see. See, Like, like oh, what the hell? I just cre- like. Did I help create this little like fame that's kind of emerging, yeah, you know? Definitely, man. Yeah. I was hanging out, out a lot in this place called Latinx House. I mean, I jump all over the place. Like I went to Macro too and like and all the other places that like have events and like parties and stuff. But it was cool to see like, oh wow, like there's new versions of like weird like Latino filmmakers kind of happening, you know, that they're like that I'd never seen before, you know, and like seeing them get more embraced, you know, because like for like a while, I feel like I was like alone in that. Like I was like, fuck, this sucks. Like, you know, like I don't know if anyone knows who like what I'm trying to do or like what am I doing? And like, like what I oh, and I also I did I did it. All right, and a, a random executive, I'm not gonna say his name or whatever, straight up gave me some uh psychedelics or some yeah. shit. So for there was one day where I was just like tripping, walking around Sundance and Slam Dance and that day was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the best day ever. You saw some movies off of it too and everything? I would go watch a movie, hang out at a place. And I would have deep conversations. Like I had a crazy conversation about time. Of course, as you do. <laughs> like yeah. time. But then like so, then some, pe- some people put you onto a book. And in the middle of that, like somebody was talking to me about this book atomic aztec there's so many people like even investigating like their own stories and like finding like properties or like things to adapt and like or like even looking at other filmmakers i really want to see a movie from you bro like i think it's gonna be sick i come up with short ideas all the time too here's a short idea i have yeah but i would need a collaborator from japan to make it uh oh work so if you see anybody out there you know how they have the the culture in office culture in Japan where the uh, boss makes the you have to keep drinking with the the boss. Oh right. When you go out outside like to a, a meeting outside of a meeting or whatever, like yeah, y'all just, you have to you just keep drinking. Yeah. And then so there's this photo sets where is these guys just laid out in the street <laughs> in, in their suits because the train stopped running. Uh, yeah, I've seen those. Yeah. Yeah. So just the story about the first uh, Japanese guy who like, no, no more. I don't want any more drinks. And then just what happens to his life when he challenges? <laughs> That's bad. Interesting. <laughs> what if there's like a guy who like, like you're just like, like your level of drinking is so high, and it's like you've been climbing the corporate ladder, and like yeah. all your employees are constantly dying or like <laughs> suffering from liver poisoning. Sun Tokyo Sundance, here we. What's the what's the uh, <laughs> Japanese film festival? Um, they actually South, have a big one. South by East <laughs> East Yokanawa Palooza. <laughs> 
Yo, so I was going to say something that's interesting about the music, like music and film, you know, they, they kind of do work together. A lot of how I got into film was through music videos and like music. And like, I actually listen to a lot of music when I work on films and I play music on set. And when I write, I listen to like, a, I'll listen to a track on repeat for like hours and hours yeah. and just write to it. There's a script that I'm writing right now that called Patty and Pedro which is about like comedy too and um and love and like i listen to songs and i write the songs into the script like i'll like this cues in this song i was about to ask are you in post are you testing different songs was the song is already locked by the time you're shooting or is it does it vary i had a crazy playlist when i had when i started the movie like this one if you were the last Mm-hmm. And I think the playlist is pretty sick, like, honestly, because I, I find a lot of obscure music. Like, I go to record stores a lot to, like, try to find music that's not locked into an algorithm, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Because, like, we all live in a world where, like, algorithms, like, kind of, like, make everyone's taste. I like finding things that, like, yo, they're off the beaten path. You have to just put in more effort, too. Like, digging yeah. in, in certain spots. I did uh, Amoeba Records, What's In My Bag. And so it was... I hadn't been in a, a massive physical media store yeah. in a while, and my brain just went crazy. I just kept getting stuff because I was judging it off the yeah. the cover art, and so it was stuff yeah. that is online. Uh, but just being yeah. there and and seeing it, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I did this on Twitter one time where I just told everybody to post their Discover Weeklies, and so then it was mm. a thread of everybody's. <laughs> so then you get to see what that. Other, other folks' algorithm is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, whoa, that's some different, it's some different <laughs> shit over here, man. It's actually guided me a lot in life, too. Like, I'll yeah. be like, I'll find a record and it takes me down a crazy rabbit hole of like yeah. stories or like weird stuff. And yeah, it's, it's kind of like sometimes it's just the artwork. Sometimes it's like you hear it, you know, like it's just like a, it's fun as hell. Like, and yeah. And it's like preserving like a weird history. And like, I don't know, there's something about it that's just like, exhilarating music can drive a film a lot of times too like some sequences and like tarantino was really good at that honestly like tarantino mm-hmm. at the time would find like very obscure songs and like attach them to scenes and use them in ways that people didn't expect you know so much mm-hmm. and like or even like the dialogue of some of his films are like famously like in reservoir dogs he's like talking like the opening conversations about madonna's i'm a virgin you know and like all the mm-hmm. The, uh, the guys are just talk deconstructing a song is pretty much all they're doing. Also, like Pulp Fiction has like a lot of scenes that just move forward with music, you know, in like, right. unique and ways. So like music can uh, really like can or you know a more recent example like it's uh, like Guardians of the Galaxy had like a playlist that it was cool because the playlist not just like plays with the song like uh, like all oh, the soundtrack but it actually motivates the story so like mm-hmm. when he like peter quill plays a song and it's the songs that his mom gave him you know what i'm saying so like it has like this emotional weight but at the same right. time it's cool it's just like dope songs you know yeah yeah man it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting it's gonna be a fun time you gonna you gonna roll up to my south by premiere roll up it's gonna be fun that's on the 13th right uh they haven't given me a date yet so i'm waiting but Unless they announced it while we were here, but <laughs> I'll find out. I'll yeah. find, the minute I get the date, I'll let you know. Yeah, I'm excited to go down. This will be my first official music, right? You know, do like South by yeah, doing real music showcases and stuff after. Hell yeah! We can kind of bounce back and forth between like your musical show and then like 
my movie and it'll be a lot of fun actually it'll be a good time man out there what i think i love the most about south by that it has like this kind of cross-pollination like when i go to like a south bar party you'll like dance you'll be dancing and then like you're next to like like someone who works like astrophysics next to like (laughs) someone who does music next to a filmmaker and it's like what the hell this is this is wild i don't know where else this conversation could happen and everybody dancing different as hell yeah in that mind ain't no singular vibe oh definitely (laughs) there's like awkward awkward uh skinny white boy indie white and thing next to like uh full-on grinding Bro, uh, <laughs> bro, you got to start DJing, man. That would be fun. I think I'm going to host like maybe a party or two, like because of the film, you know, so like, or I'll be involved with them. So like, and you you know what the they did this year in uh, Sundance that was new? There was a Caribbean mm-hmm. house, uh, like a Caribbean uh, party. It was the inaugural year. And it was honestly one of the best parties in the whole thing. And it was like, you know, like every like um like Haitians, Jamaican, Puerto Ricans, uh, Dominicans, like they would just like, but it brought in like so many random people too, because like, you know, people are looking for like spaces to kind of like after hours to kind of like congregate, you know? It was just cool to see that for the first time, you know, too, yeah. where like but like also at the same time, it's like, damn, what what year is it? 2023? Yeah. <laughs> it took us a while. Took a minute. Took a minute. Well, so on a set, yeah, who are three figures on a set that are traditionally kind of criminally overlooked or underappreciated? Underlooked, underappreciated. The PA. The PA? A PA always, always, yep. yeah. I would say the PA is like crucial because they're kind of your fundamental like building block of a set, you know? Like, like the fame won't move unless you have PAs because they have mm-hmm. to kind of like they're kind of like in a way like kind of the baseline where they have to be like the guys running around to bring like other people together or like to handle these like small tasks that if they added up or accumulated your set would just be a mess you know i think like uh gaffers are probably not like well known in the same light what's the gaffer do gaffer's kind of like your lead like lighter guy like he's mm-hmm. like the guy handling the lights hands on and like Organ like has a team, and he's kind of like the DP's secondhand person. The DP is definitely like in charge of the look of the film, but like part of that being in charge of the look of the film is like the gaffer is kind of like the person who knows how to manipulate the lights to the DP's needs, you know. So like when you have like a dope gaffer, the lighting difference is really noticeable between gaffers, you know, because I've noticed it so many times, you know, where like, you know, what's crazy, like for my movie, like the gaffer signed on based on an animated short that I did in Nuevo Rico that had a lot of color in it. Mm-hmm. And you could tell like he, he was like, actually like, like we were like, we're not worried, but like, you know, there was that feeling of like, are we going to get a gaffer that's going to be like on the level that Alex needs? Right. And then this guy is really, really good. His name is Gonzo and he's like a genius, but just based on this other piece of material that I did that I but he was excited because like a lot of movies will almost like have one set look. And my movie has like a lot of random, not even random, but like more like it's just colorful and like very like explosive and like kind of like it doesn't shy away from like doing like colorful things. So people don't really think about the gaffer too much, but the gaffer, you'll notice a difference. Gaffer, it don't it don't sound as important as it is. Like that doesn't sound like the person in charge of all of the 
in terms of the lighting of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound as uh, romantic, I guess. Yeah, gaffer. You know, sets are kind of like, if I'm honest about it, the, the here's the, uh, I think this is like a secret in a way. And I'm like, I'm a big proponent of just not gatekeeping and just telling people things like from a real place. But like, like a, a set is really kind of like a weird, like, it's a, a thing where like high art meets blue collar, you know, mm-hmm. like if you're really honest about it, like I think people yeah. focus on the high art a lot more because it's what's facing forward. But sets have a lot of blue collar jobs. So like you're kind of dealing with people who have these like kind of almost construction worker attitudes. Absolutely. And like the grip electric department. But people don't. I feel like that's where the, I think the idea of the pretentious director comes in, you know, because sometimes you get like these leaders that are like kind of like so far removed from a blue collar thing, like that they don't even know how to communicate with those folk, you know. I think part of the reason I like feel very comfortable and fluid on a set is because so much of my life has been like kind of being in two worlds, you know, like where I've seen high end shit, <laughs> like <laughs> I've been in that room. <laughs> <laughs> but I've also been like, you know, come from the, you know, very like humble place. So I always feel comfortable talking blue collar with the, the folks on a set, you know, and like sometimes I almost like prefer it in a way. In my set, I got really cool with the head of the grip department and it would be like we just give each other a pound the minute we've seen each other like, yo, we're going to do it. And that elevates the work because now, you know, what I'm saying like, like those little things are important on a set. Like you got to appreciate your crew, you know? Yeah. They could easily just phone that shit in and say, I ain't about to yeah. see this, this motherfucker. This shit is how many more? We got what? Two more weeks. Let's just get this shit done, man. Yeah. And so it's good if, you know, yeah. they are excited to do the work with you. What point in the process of the script are you in? Outlining and, and just writing, wrote a lot of scene ideas, hmm. deciding just the character motivations and, and, hmm. uh, yeah, a lot of just, you know, come up with a lot of funny parts already. Now it just needs to be, next step is maybe one more brainstorming session and then mm. go from, like, after that, start mm. putting a draft together. You worked in a lot of, like, writer's rooms and places back in the day, right? Yeah, Saturday Night Live back in 09, 2010. That sounds crazy to say. 30 Rock, too, no? Like, did you work in 30 Rock? And 30 Rock, yeah. yeah. Did you learn a lot about, like, the writing process in those rooms? Like, writer's rooms are weird places, aren't they? I learned a lot about improving stuff and mm. and pitching and and just trying to beat a joke or beat a line or beat a scenario. And so within a short amount of time that you have to brainstorm, looking at being able to look at something and assess it and say, is this the best version mm. of that idea and, and, and doing that? And so I think it helped that muscle early on be like okay is that it or is it is it can we do better right now we gotta we got a couple hours can we mm. as a group so mm. that part of it i think saturday night live being there even though i didn't have much success in the traditional mm-hmm. way of getting a bunch of sketches on it definitely yeah. taught me fast production just yeah, putting, yeah. putting stuff together yeah quickly you know and and so in that sense of just getting the crew, getting there, here's the idea, let's do it, you know, and, and just not being able to do that. 30 Rock helped me, you know, thinking of story a bit and, and storylines and just sharpening, sharpening jokes. And and I just learned the other the other side too of production. I'm still really green. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. And I remember them talking about some one actor only 
giving them a day or two or of availability. Oh right, yeah, yeah. And yeah like yeah. we only got him for this day, and I and yeah. I remember then because I hadn't acted at that point, and I was thinking, well, why why wouldn't he want to give up all of his time? <laughs> what he's not giving up all of his time? This is thirty, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like a miracle to schedule anything. Yeah. Honestly, talent availability is kind of like a its own like process and it's crazy too yeah but you have to like yeah. i didn't honestly you have to be considerate of people's time too yeah like you don't know like what they're like not just even in like their personal lives what's going on but like what's their schedule like what's going on with them you don't know how many houses this person's gotten and now they're like whoa I'm like the water i need a water right now I got seven kids. I definitely need to work on every show possible. Now, <laughs> let me out of this movie right now so I can get to my game show, motherfucker. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I've been interested in like what the like just what the dynamics of the writers room is and like. Stuff like that. Yeah, I'm excited to put a room together for this this movie. I'm gonna do the, you know, once we have a draft, I'll do a table read, you know, uh, with folks, and then you know, rewrite, mm. then get some comics to punch up, like really beat the shit up, make sure the writing is as pristine as can be, and then still, you know, improving on set as we can too. Hell yeah! Well, I wish you luck on your uh, film journey, man. Like and your music journey. Thank you, man. Appreciate it, dog. Yeah. Congratulations to you, man, on on all the film work and all the great you. work, dog. It's been a joy appreciate to work with you over the years, bro. Honestly, yeah, you've been a big part of it too. Yeah. So thank you. Work. I'm hoping uh, we'll kind of make something bigger at some point. You know? Yeah, man. I got that immersive theater idea. <laughs> that one, yeah. I want to do an immersive, an immersive play. Oh, damn. Yeah. All right. All right. Catch you later. Peace, man. Peace. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Hannibal Burris and Chris Mercado for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the great stuff we've got going at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.